drop. Hey, Idaho Dems, welcome back to another episode of ID Pod, where we talk about Idaho politics and how it affects you, the voter. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jesse. And we are back after a <laughs> long break. Long break. I think the last, I mean, we did an episode after, a couple episodes after we all closed the office. Yeah. But we're back in the studio, masked up. <laughs> we are masked. Um, for the first time since right after our primary. Yeah. I think the last episode we did was the first uh, confirmed mm-hmm. case in Idaho. I think, yeah. It was on that day. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Been so it's a, been, been a long, long time, time. <laughs> but we're back and it's, it's very very strange to be back here um, but we're excited to be back with you and back talking about Idaho politics um, today we have the world famous <laughs> Luke Mayville co-founder of Reclaim Idaho with us yeah and we were super excited to talk to him about what's next for Reclaim um, the recent uh, SCOTUS decision involving their initiative process. Um, yeah, and we, and we relived re- uh, Medicaid expansion a little bit. And yeah, we got about, a little nostalgic uh, about Medicaid. And yeah, it was a great interview. It was good to have him on. It was good to be back here. It was somebody that we've wanted to have on for a while. So it was really nice to get back into the swing of things. And we look forward to continuing recording podcasts as we move forward to the election we record this 92 days out from mm-hmm. general election day yeah 92 so. days so we're gonna make a little plug for requesting your absentee yeah, ballots uh head to uh, iwillvote.com yeah and you will be able to see uh where you can request your ballot request yeah. your ballot register to vote check your registration yeah. all in one place it's great make sure you get that done now yeah. and don't wait till the last minute yeah but without further ado Please enjoy our episode with Luke Mayville. Luke Mayville of Reclaim Idaho. We're really excited to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Lindsay. On every episode, we ask our guests what their favorite potato dish is as an icebreaker. So, Luke, what would you say your favorite potato dish is? Wow. Okay, I think... (laughs) I think it's a toss-up. I, I like. I really like roasted red po- potatoes. Um, you know, with rosemary, mm-hmm. garlic. Yeah. Uh, roasted in the oven. That's yeah. one that I, I used to make. Um, I was a I was a cook up in Sandpoint, um, and I we used to. That was one of the fixtures on the uh, at the at the Beach House restaurant there. And that, that's that's always been my favorite dish. That's a good one. That sounds delicious. That is a great one. You know, if it wasn't a hundred and some degrees outside, I might start up my oven and make that tonight, but uh, <laughs> yeah, have to wait a couple of days. <laughs> wait, wait for it. Yeah. Yep. I don't really want to turn the oven on at all right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. So Luke, you, as, as we've mentioned, you are one of the co-founders of Reclaim Idaho. Tell us how Reclaim Idaho came to be, where and when everything kind of came into place and when you guys got your start. Yeah. Well, it started as something of an experiment. Um, I had grown up in Sandpoint area, outside of Sandpoint. Um, and I'd gone off and become an academic. I was living on the East Coast, um, but I visited all the time. And um, I'd heard about an issue with the local public schools where they're running these facilities levies and supplemental levies. And um, which by the way, I, I Jesse, I'm aware that, that you've been involved in some of those local campaigns yourself in, in Lewiston. Um, but, um, and I was following it closely because there was really a resurgent, uh, you know, movement in the local area to defeat those levy votes. And, um, and there are more and more people who really believe that we don't need public schools anymore. And, and we ought to be transitioning towards, you know, some combination of homeschool and private school. So, uh, and, and, or, or maybe just, you know, who cares at all because we're all retired and we don't have kids in, in this state we moved here recently, maybe, and that kind of thing. So, so that was really aggravating me. And, and I'd been talking to some friends about it and, and we had learned that a um, facilities levy had gone down by a margin of two to one. And, and this was in, um, that would have been at the end of 2016. And then at the beginning of 20, beginning of 2017, there was a supplemental levy going up for a vote. And 
that was really scary because we're thinking, okay, this last facilities levy failed and that was about rebuilding a crumbling school. If this supplemental levy fails, they'll have to actually close schools, mm -hmm. possibly permanently. And then we learned that, you know, the supplemental levy had failed uh, a couple years earlier up north in Bonners Ferry, and they did close one of their main schools there. Um, so it wasn't kind of speculation. It was actually happening in the region. Um, so that's where I decided to join together with my friend Garrett Strizich and um, I, I just flew back home for the spring break. Um, I had been teaching, and I, but I had the spring break off, and I, I flew back home, and we just organized for about 10 straight days. And um, I hadn't had that much experience in politics, but I was sort of obsessed with politics. I had done a PhD in political science, and, and I had volunteered from time to time on campaigns. I had sort of learned, I'd learned quite a lot of, about organizing by um, being the chair of the social action committee at my Catholic parish. And that was my main sort of, I'd been doing that for a couple of years prior um, to Reclaim Idaho. So I learned something of what it takes there. Um, but when we, when I flew back, we just, you know, Garrett was similarly interested in these kinds of things we just threw everything we had at it. We kind of on the fly, we learned how to use like uh, vote builder. And, <laughs> and uh, I think Garrett actually got in touch with someone at someone helped someone uh, with the Idaho democratic party, like at the last minute helped him a little bit with some figuring out how to do some turfs and things and um, all just over the phone. And, um, and I took a bunch of things I learned about getting out the vote, and, you know, from political science. The, the the program where I got my PhD at Yale, they had um, it was sort of like the cent the it was it was the center for thinking about what works and what doesn't work for getting out the vote. Mm -hmm. So I'd been thinking about that stuff for years, but never putting any of it into practice. <laughs> and um, and we just threw everything we had. A, and the big event was we had one big day where we brought everyone together to knock on doors. And over 50 people showed up. Wow. Uh, and that was really, I mean, we didn't come up with Reclaim Idaho for a couple more months, the whole, the statewide, the idea for a statewide organization. But I think that was really the moment when it started for me, when just seeing that so many people were willing to show up to do that work, to, to do this work. Um, that was deeply inspiring and it kind of, that was where the, the addiction started for me. Yeah. And, um, and then when it came, I mean, long story short, came to a vote, we won by a huge margin, mm. you know, and, and then, you know, we went to a celebration party, um, the night of the election and there were Democrats there, there were Republicans there, there were you know, people different ages, different walks of life there. And that was probably the second most inspiring thing because it was mm -hmm. it left me with the thought that, whoa, people, if you organize around the right issues, you really can bring people together. Um, you're not going to get everyone on your side, but you can overcome some of these deep divisions. Sure. And, um, and that's basically the origin of Reclaim Idaho was us basically sitting down and thinking, wow, that was that was a really inspiring experience. Let's see if we can do that at the state level. Let's see if we can do for the entire state of Idaho, what we did in that local community. And, um, so our first question was, what is the issue that is just as urgent for all of Idaho is that local levy was for that community. That's how we came up with Medicaid expansion and reclaim Idaho really grew and rapidly once once we started organizing statewide around Medicaid expansion. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it there for uh, now. The, no, that's it's fascinating. I think a lot of people and as you mentioned, I worked on a, a couple of local levy campaigns and you really do bring together a lot of people that are from completely different walks of life because education really does boil down to all of us are in it together. Um, at least you hope so. And that's, I think, a really nice segue into 
we definitely want to talk about Medicaid expansion because that's one of the right. greatest things that's happened in definitely recent Idaho politics history. But you know, getting your footing f- from the education standpoint, let's kind of pivot into the Invest in Idaho campaign that you guys all took took on. And obviously, there's been some recent news on that, which we want to talk about. But can you talk to us about what Invest in Idaho is and where that really got its start at? Right. Well, it, it's it's a great segue from the issue of local levies <laughs> to talk about this statewide education campaign that we that we later launched because, um, you know, the local the levy system is a disaster in Idaho. The the it, every two years for, in so many communities, you end up in this tragic, you know, situation where. The question of whether the schools are going to remain open is on the ballot, right? And and it and it politicizes basic questions of funding, right. uh, not and 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 um, and we're always in this tough situation, right? Because those of us who support education, for the most part, want these things to pass always. Mm-hmm. But we also realize it's the wrong way to raise money for education. Right. We shouldn't. We, we shouldn't rely on local property tax votes. What we ought to be doing is funding education at the state level. That's what the Constitution requires. I mean, in, in writing at least, mm-hmm. that's what the Idaho Constitution <laughs> written, written in 1890 requires, is that the state has a responsibility for, for funding our system of public education. and. And not only that, it's the right thing to do because if you have any sense of equality, that if you have any sense that you know, as as we often say, that a a child's opportunity shouldn't depend on their zip code, right. the basic sense of equal opportunity, um, then you ought to want the state of Idaho to take on that responsibility and not leave it up to local communities, which are vastly different in their ability to pay for. For education, mm-hmm. it really go depends on how rich your property tax base is. Um, that that that's the limit of your ability to fund education. So, what we always wanted, part when we, even when we started the Medicaid expansion campaign, we launched Reclaim Idaho, our very first event that we ever had, way back in like May of or June of 2017, was an event on education. And it was all about the need to adequately fund education at the state level, calling on the state, the state of Idaho to adequately fund education. So, so it was only natural after the Medicaid expansion campaign that we went back to our roots and we, we came up with an initiative where, okay, how can we at least start, how can we take a big step in the right direction to at least get closer to adequately funded schools. I want to just say really clearly, like our initiative, what we proposed just really quick was somewhere between 170 to 200 million, depending on how much revenue is brought in in a mm-hmm. given year, but about 170, 200 million per year um, paid for by very modest tax increases on the highest income earners and also on um, C corporations. Um, which tend to be the large, large corporations. Um, that's what the initiative was. I want to say it, it's not nearly enough, actually. Mm-hmm. So at truly adequately funding education in Idaho would be somewhere between uh, $500 million and a and billion dollars more per year. Um, that's what it would really take. But this was a, at the very least, this was a bold step in the right direction that was much more ambitious than anything being proposed in the legislature. For sure. Um, so, and and it's something you could do with an initiative. We, we thought long and hard about, can you do even more with an initiative? And we, we concluded that it would be pretty tough just with one single initiative to do like 500 billion or a billion dollars. <laughs> um, um, maybe a series of initiatives over six years or something could, could do that. But, um, but that's what we came up with. And, and the overall goal is just to, you know, more adequately fund education, but, um, a, um, you know, byproduct of that would actually be to lessen the need 
for those supplemental levies at the local level. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe in some cases, maybe those levies wouldn't have to be voted on. In other cases, maybe the levies would be a little bit less. Um, so they would be less controversial if they're like only um, a much smaller right. um, property tax uh, increase. But, the, but that's what we proposed. And, and we were very um, aggressive about saying, you know, 170 million for education, no new property taxes, no new taxes on anyone making under a quarter million dollars. Uh, we could talk about the fate of that initiative, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but that's basically, it's basically what it was. Right. Yeah. No, I do want to um, talk about the fate of it just a little bit um, because I was reading an article yeah. and, you know, the decision came down from SCOTUS a couple last week um, as we were recording this. And it, as you know, obviously put a stay on you guys collecting signatures, but I was reading and I came across a quote from the GOP chairman, Tom Luna, that said, it stopped judicial tyranny here in Idaho is what the Supreme Court's ruling said. So I, I really just want to ask you, I have a feeling I know what the answer is, but do you, <laughs> did you really see you trying to invest in Idaho's education and public schools as tyranny? Uh, no. Next <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, no, I could no, I, but I, w I will speak to that. I mean, I think what he meant specifically, which it was in, I don't want to just put it on Tom Luna because he's basically his rhetoric is a more extreme version, but sure. it's pretty much the same point mm -hmm. that the governor and the secretary of state. Mm -hmm. made. Yeah. And, um, and they were really pointing their finger at the district Sure. The federal district court and they were calling they were calling what the district court did um judicial activism well what the district just to just a review um just a quick overview um we were in the middle of this intense signature drive when the pandemic really made its way to idaho in early march and um and pretty much as soon as the state of emergency was declared in idaho in Mar march 13th it became pretty clear that we weren't going to be able to carry on with our petition drive. We suspended our signature drive right around then only after, um, for basically urging the governor, um, and the secretary of state to give us some kind of alternative means to collect signatures safely. Um, we requested doing it online. Mm -hmm. They didn't have, they didn't give us the time of day. They weren't even willing to meet with us or anything. Um, they just kind of sent a few polite emails back to us and that was it. Yeah. Um, so we had to suspend our signature drive and, and then, you know, it became even clearer that we were right to do that because a couple days later, the governor declared a stay at home order, which would have made collecting signatures a misdemeanor. And I know, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. You would have yeah. gone out and, and gone in public places and tried to go within six feet of people it would have been a misdemeanor. So, um, punishable. Right. And, um, so clearly we couldn't do that. And it took a while to kind of figure out, we, we knew that there was something wrong about that, mm -hmm. that that didn't seem like, that, that seemed like our rights were being violated somehow, but it took a while and it took me really stepping back and seeing how other states were grappling with it. And eventually in May, um, we noticed that other states were bringing bring it the issue to court on first amendment grounds that mm -hmm. if this if your state does not provide you with a safe way to collect signatures and you're already in the middle of a drive and right. it looked like you're probably going to win which we could prove um then it then then the state ought to step in and give relief in mm -hmm. order to protect your first amendment constitutional rights to to speech right and um so we were we brought a lawsuit to the district court, the federal district, the, the U.S. district court for the district of Idaho. And we won that lawsuit. The judge ruled in our favor. That, uh, so circling back to your original comment, that's what Tom, Tom right. Luna is talking about. That's what Brad Little is talking about when they say that this is judicial tyranny, judicial activism, when really the, the reality is it was the federal judiciary doing exactly what they're supposed to do. One Correct. of their chief roles, which is to defend rights mm -hmm. against state governments. Right. Like when, when state government, and the judge was even very soft about it. The judge basically said, 
look, I don't think you intended to, to violate any rights here, but in effect you did. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have to offer some relief so that that's why the judge eventually it went through some details we don't have to get into, but eventually the judge ordered the state to allow us to collect electronic signatures. And then of course the last week, um, the Supreme court of the United States, <laughs> the, the big one stepped in and said, um, no, we're going to block that. We're going to, we're going to basically overturn not technically, but in All effect, right. overturn the decision of that district court. And um, so it's, it is interesting that, that people like Tom Luna think that what the district court did just mm -hmm. by giving us a shot to put it on the ballot, right. that was tyranny. But when the Supreme Court comes along and writes like a couple yeah. pages without even really considering the facts of the case, exactly. and they just kind of shrug right. us off and say, nope, grassroots campaign in Idaho, you're done. Like that's not tyrannical, right. but, right. but, um, you, but you won't, you won't hear me running around like calling it tyranny because <laughs> I'm, I'm not Tom Luna, right. but, um, which two things, not the way I talk. <laughs> two things there. It's very, there, the irony's not lost on any of us that Tom Luna used to be the superintendent of public instruction. You know, I don't know how many people read this court decision. I am one of those people that reads the court decisions when they come in, especially things that affect Idaho and, Sonia Sotomayor's dissent signed on by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I thought was very, uh, it, it was, it was good. Um, yeah. And I just want to read the last like sentence that she put in her dissent because yeah. I just think it was very, it was great. Yep. Today, mm -hmm. by jumping ahead of the Court of Appeals, this court once again forgets that it is a, quote, court of review, not of first view, and undermines the public's expectations expectation that its highest court will act only after dissenting considered deliberation. I respectfully dissent of the, from the grant of stay. Um, I just thought it was a very good. And, and let me just, just, I could say a little bit about that to try to yeah. make sense of it. But if, in case you hear that and, and you see it as kind of abstract, um, one way to interpret what she's saying is that, you know, it's, it's just not right for the United States Supreme Court to so hastily and quickly, um, you know, we're, uh, so hastily and quickly make these decisions. And not only that, um, basically nullify the role of the lower court mm -hmm. because, and, and this is something we haven't mentioned yet, but, um, we won in the district court the next the state then appealed the decision the next stop was supposed to be in the circuit court mm -hmm. where the circuit court was actually going to give our case a full hearing and they were going to determine um whether the they, they were going to either uphold or not uphold the district court now instead of this the supreme court could have waited until after that decision or the Supreme Court could have said, okay, we're just going to temporarily block um, this signature drive until that circuit court gets a chance to rule. Instead, they didn't do that. Instead, they said, we're going to block it even if they win in the circuit court. Even if the circuit court mm -hmm. rules and reclaim Idaho's favor, it's going to remain blocked. So by doing that, they basically nullified the role the circuit court right. and that's what Sotomayor is yeah. calling out and 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 a really specific point that she's making is that that is really overstepping the role of the supreme court because it's the lower courts that have a really special role to play in analyzing local facts like the facts on the ground in these local cases the supreme court has real difficulty with all the things it has to consider and having this like thousand, you know, thousand foot view for, uh, of things, mm -hmm. um, it's really hard for them to carefully sift through all the facts in a you know grassroots campaign in Idaho. And I just want to say as well that that really came out in the decision. Like if you read yeah. um, Chief Justice Roberts' decision, he got several things just factually wrong. Right. right. Um, I'll just mention maybe two of them. But one is that. He just took at face value one of the county 
clerks claim mm -hmm. that initiatives are always that forty percent of the signatures are always invalid, yeah. even though we had provided them with the facts that we had an internal verification system that we set up mm -hmm. that that um, showed that eighty percent of our signatures were valid. So that was just like a a big factual inaccuracy in the Supreme Court decision. In the decision itself. Ugh. Yeah, and and then another one that's like really offensive, I think, is that they took seriously the state of Idaho's point that um, we need to strictly adhere to our initiative rules because if we don't, we're going to clutter the ballot mm -hmm. with a bunch of initiatives and and that's going to include initiatives that don't have any grassroots support. They love to bring it, that up. Like, yeah, oh, you're going to clutter the ballot. Yeah. Whereas number one, that's never happened in Idaho in all <laughs> right. of our history. Never. We've had, I, and I forget the numbers now, but I think it's like, I think it's like a dozen have made the ballot or something like that. I, wow. I've, need to look more I, I, we, we we were really on top of this a year ago when we were battling over this issue but but it's like a tiny number have ever made the ballot you know I think only two have made the ballot like if you don't count the Luna law things which weren't right. initiatives they were referendum um, only like two initiatives have made the ballot since 2006 so it's like extremely rare for initiatives to even make the ballot but the Supreme Court's saying there's a danger in Idaho of initiatives cluttering the ballot and then and then and and not having grassroots support even though the only initiative being considered in this decision is reclaim Idaho's <laughs> and I, I mean come on like you could you could maybe you could make an argument that like we don't quite we didn't quite have enough grassroots support to win or maybe it wasn't quite as strong as Medicaid expansion but by any Generate by any definition, if you've got like local teams supporting an initiative, like in counties all over the state, mm -hmm. like that, that's pretty grassroots. And it's so it's, right. um, it was silly. And but it, but it really brought that really brought home Sotomayor's point that it's the district court and the circuit court that have an ability to actually look more closely at those facts. So at the very least, the Supreme Court ought to let that process run its course let those facts be closely considered by those lower courts instead they just brought the hammer down and and um before the ninth circuit even got a chance to rule so it was that was that was a shame well let's talk about something a little happier. yeah How's we want to yeah. <laughs> all right so medicaid expansion probably like jesse said one of the most amazing things to happen in idaho politics in i don't know Definitely recent in memory. That's Definitely for sure. the re yeah, just great example of what grassroots activism can do, um, and how it's not Medicaid is not a or healthcare is not a partisan issue. It's really something that everybody cares about. Um, why did you choose Medicaid expansion as the first effort for reclaim? Yeah, well, I can go back. Let's see. There's two ways to answer that. Um, <laughs> One is that we we identified it as one of the top issues early on, like top three. Um, and, and that was because it was just, it was, it hit this real sweet spot where um, it was simple to do it in terms of, um, it was a simple reform. All it took was one page, uh, a one page initiative you just had to modify the eligibility level for, for Medicaid and and say that Idaho would take those federal dollars. Um, and um, so, and it would do an enormous amount of good. So like a simple reform that would do an enormous amount of good. There's nothing like, there was no opportunity quite like that. I mean, there, there's some comparable ones, but but just in terms of the sheer amount of good it would do. I think that Medicaid expansion, I, I had been reading closely about it for years and being ashamed that, I, that my home state had rejected it um, because of every, you know, okay, so the ACA was the greatest federal legislative achievement of 
the entire, you know, last, you know, since Obama was elected. Right. Um, but the ACA, I strongly believe, is pretty flawed. It's pretty, it's got a lot of issues with it. It did a lot of good, and we could talk more about that. But, but the single biggest success story by far is Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed over the years, like when I was back home talking to people, when people would complain about Obamacare this, Obamacare that, they would never talk about the Medicaid part. They would always talk about the mandate. Mm-hmm. They would talk about how even if they had a plan on the exchange, it was still too expensive or it still didn't, you know, it, like the, the deductible was going up, the premium was going up. Mm-hmm. So they would talk about the mandate and they would talk about the exchange. They would never talk about Medicaid. And I started looking and noticing, I think that was pretty much true around the country. Very little complaints about Medicaid expansion because Medicaid expansion was a phenomenal success. Um, of the millions and millions of people covered by the ACA across the country, uh, the vast majority of people who were covered for the first time in their lives was through Medicaid expansion. It wasn't through the state exchanges. It was through Medicaid expansion. So, and, I, and I'm looking at all these statistics like, okay, Medicaid, when all these different states pass Medicaid expansion, it cut their uninsured rate in half. Wow. It dramatically cut down on the debt of carried by households. It dramatically cut down on preventable deaths. Um, and what it all amounted to, in my estimate, which I started saying once we started campaigning for it, is that, look, if we can do this in Idaho, this would be the single biggest step forward for the health of working families in 50 years. It, you, to have anything equal to this, you'd have to go back to the original enactment of Medicare and Medicaid mm-hmm. In 1965. Um, so just the the sheer scale of it and how much good it would do, and and um, and the fact that you can do it with a one page initiative, it is it, just it was it was pretty obvious. Um, I, but that said, I will say that um, I original I originally wasn't on to it. I got to give credit where it's due because it was like I thought of it as like one of the things we should organize around. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to admit here on this podcast something that I haven't admitted very often, which is when we first thought of the idea of driving the green camper all around the state, yeah. which maybe we could talk a little more about. Um, my first idea was to have like an education mobile or a, or a pre-K mobile. <laughs> um, we we're going to like thinking about organizing around pre-K. And I was floating that to my friend Garrett, um, who, by the way, you know, co-founded Reclaim Idaho with me and then pretty quickly his wife Emily another close friend of mine became one of the co-founders as well and became as big a part of it as anyone else but um, when I first floated the idea to Garrett of the like pre-k mobile he was like you know I think if we're gonna really go big and we're gonna start driving around Idaho in a camper and advocating for one issue mainly you should make it Medicaid expansion and he said and this is critical. He said, um, because I've been, you know, he, he'd been in the medical, doing medical work. And he's like, I've been at some of these clinics around the state and these like, you know, nurses and healthcare workers, they see the urgency of this. Mm-hmm. And so you would have like a, you'd have built in understanding of this issue already all around the state. You don't have to like sell people on it. Mm-hmm. There's like a built in base of people in every community even in really rural communities yeah. voted 80% for Trump or whatever, they, they're, they still understand this issue. So let's start, mm-hmm. let's start with the issue where we already have mm-hmm. the groundwork of a, the, the beginnings of a consensus. So that, yeah. that's, that's basically how we arrived at it. Yeah, I was actually, the camper was gonna be my next question actually. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit more about that and how that became such a symbol of the effort. Yeah, so um, we had we had this grand idea of you know taking off from from North Idaho and um, going all around the state and advocating around these big what we called consensus issues that would bring people together, similar to that local 
levy. And in the three issues we came up with were strong public schools, protected public lands, healthcare for working families. We still haven't launched any like concerted campaign around protected public lands, but that was one that we initially um, at least talked about when we were out on the road and things. Um, but, but then, but then we had a challenge, like why would people show up to hear we're just a couple people, um, who don't, no one knows who we are. Um, we might, we might be able to, for example, you know, if there, if there's a democratic party committee in a given town, <laughs> maybe they'll show up, show up mm -hmm. to, to talk to us. But, but beyond that, how are we going to get, how are we going to get in the newspaper? Um, how are we going to really catch, catch on? Um, and that's when I started thinking, you know, we need a spectacle. We need to dramatize this. And, um, and I thought of, I had some different ideas in my head of how people had done that in the past. I was a big fan of this campaign as a, as a Catholic, I was, um, big fan of this campaign called nuns on the bus of, um, these, uh, back in 2012, this group of nuns, um, who were advocating against Medicaid cuts. Um, they wow. all, they formed a campaign called nuns on the bus and, um, and they hit the road and they went to all these purple States and they, and like into districts of legislators who were going to vote for Medicaid cuts. And they rallied, mostly like older Catholic uh, people wow. against the Medicaid cuts. And, um, and I was, I, I just thought that was so powerful the way they did that. And that, and that was one idea. The other idea came from um, Paul Wellstone. Mm -hmm. He used to drive around in a big green, big green bus all around like rural Minnesota, yep. uh, mobilizing people. So we, but our unique, our unique idea was to say, we're going to take, we're going to take a vehicle. We're going to take a, an actual vehicle and make it like a metaphorical vehicle for a policy. <laughs> so we're going to, it's going to be like yeah. the, the vehicle is going to be like a mascot for a policy. And, and it could even be like very endearing. And, and that's where we came up with, we were like, let's call it the Medicaid mobile. And, um, and it's like this vehicle, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's on the move, you know, it's like right. a movement going from town to town and it, and, and, um, and it's, and it, and it's the symbol for this change that we, that we ought to mm -hmm. have. Um, and there was some, there was originally, there was a lot of pushback even among like people we were organizing with in North Idaho because they were like, uh, Medicaid, that's welfare. People don't like that, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, but we decided we were like, you know what? We think people do like it actually mm -hmm. because the polling suggests they do. Right. And you never really hear, you hear, this is something funny. Like progressives think people don't like welfare, <laughs> but, but, when, but, but, and, and I'm not saying, sure, you can go door to door and con conservatives will, you know, go on diatribes about welfare, right. but there's not nearly as much like hatred of Medicare and Medicaid out there as a lot of progressives think there is. That's my view. And yeah. that was our, that's, that was our view back then. We're like, you know what, we're just going to be bold. Let's just put Medicaid for Idaho across the side of the camper mm -hmm. and call it the Medicaid mobile. And, 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 you know, come up with some really clear messaging like the Medicaid mobile is rolling into, t rolling into <laughs> Kellogg. You know, and, and we're going to be yep. at this, we're going to be at this uh, corner at this time. And we're going to talk about the need to expand Medicaid. And, and, um, and that's what we did. We went on the Medicaid for Idaho tour, we called it. This was before we had an initiative. Right. And we went to 20 different towns, every part of the state. Um, and, and that became the basis because on that tour, we didn't have an initiative, but we were able to build relationships mm -hmm. all around the state. And then we went back to them a couple months later and said, do you all want to do something big and actually put this thing on the ballot? Mm -hmm. And and not only that, are you willing to maybe lead right. in your community? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I it was an amazing experience.
experience with that model of organizing, and I think the Medicaid mobile was a key piece of it. Yeah. Um, I, the whole thing. I think it's a, it's a very strong symbol. Like people mm-hmm. very much associate Reclaim Idaho with that green RV. But I think that was more symbolic about it is you went through three different RVs. Like you kept <laughs> get, you, you kept really? getting knocked down, but you kept getting back up. You kept finding the next <laughs> RV. Right? Like it, that's that is the most personification of grassroots organizing. Is you might get a door slammed on you, but you're going on to the next, right? And I just think that really speaks to reclaim and the effort for Medicaid expansion to a whole. But yeah, to go through three. I had no idea. <laughs> different painting techniques to, I, what are you guys on now? That's um, right. Uh, duct tape. Duct tape. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On duct tape now. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah, we covered an entire RV in green duct tape because you couldn't paint in the right. cold. Oh, and wow. <laughs> we couldn't get a quote from anyone in Idaho <laughs> or anywhere in the region who could who could paint our rv like indoors yeah for for under like ten thousand dollars oh boy so we ended up spending i think uh i think we spent under two hundred dollars on on a bright green duct tape that's amazing the whole thing (laughs) again it it, worked it just speaks to the grassroots you know finding ways to to keep it going that's amazing Yeah. yeah yeah it's sort of like um Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You really need yeah. to have a breakthrough. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So that year you went all over the state. Um, some amazing work happened. And in November, 35 out of 44 counties and over 60% of voters statewide passed Medicaid expansion. Um, surprisingly, like you were saying earlier, um, People think that people have an issue with welfare and things like that. Uh, But then we have the legislature um, and then folks like the Idaho Freedom Foundation speaking out against Medicaid expansion, trying to hinder the um, right to get initiatives on the ballot, things like that. Um, But yet Medicaid expansion still passes uh, largely. So what do you think this means for Idaho's political future? Um, Yeah. And yeah, just the the future of our political system in Idaho. Yeah. Well, what became clear, and this is always what we suspected all along, but um, you know, many of the people in power have a pretty rigid ideology that most Idahoans do not share. They maybe they maybe maybe the the average Idahoan has some significant overlap with you know representative mike moyle and like and they they might agree with some of what he's saying not i but but his <laughs> his his ideology is very rigid and um pretty extreme and i'm and i pick him to talk about because i'm not even talking about like the conspiracy theorists who are way out there right. who keep getting elected um but someone like mike moyle who really does focus on he doesn't tend to get way off into the conspiracy theories. He mm-hmm. tends to focus on the economic issues and tax issues and healthcare and education. So, um, yeah. and he's just a, you know, modern kind of Reaganite um, conservative. Um, and good old boy. And 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 there's a whole worldview of what, you know, there's a whole economic philosophy there, um, a whole philo- political philosophy there. And most people just are not fully on board with that. Not even, not even close. And one, but one way that they, one way that they win, the the Mike Moyles of the world, is is by projecting a view that they that their views are the popular views. Mm-hmm. That you know. So whenever you hear like a news, you know, uh, in uh, in. in newspaper editorial or a pundit on, you know, one of our uh, local television stations or something, whenever they say something like, oh, Idaho is an extremely fiscally conservative state, that's what the voters believe. That isn't really true, but it's a, that's a huge victory for Mike Moyle, that they believe that. Mm -hmm. Because that then leads people to think that if you put Medicaid expansion on the ballot, it wouldn't pass. Right. Or in the case of our latest initiative, if you put an initiative on the ballot that 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 calls for a very reasonable tax, reasonable modest tax increases on the highest income earners, that that's obviously not going to pass in Idaho. Don't mm-hmm. even try. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when the reality is um, those ideas are at the they're they're either popular, you know, things like Medicaid expansion, you know, a more fair tax system. They're either popular or at least people are persuadable. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to go out there and do the work. Yeah. And if you have a really strong campaign and strong messaging, people can be persuaded. I believe that the real like um, the real conservatism of the state, the reason why we're locked in and I mean, seems so at least temporarily in into this really skewed um, lopsided political climate um, it's all about partisanship and it's all about um, it's all it, it so much of it comes down to just um, convincing people to hate the Democratic Party mm -hmm. convincing people to think that anyone who runs as a Democrat is part of like a national conspiracy <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to undermine to undermine your values and your way of life yeah and um, so when you know the Mike Moyles of the world go out there and and run for re-election um, that's how they win like that's how they actually win votes they don't mm -hmm. win votes because they're because their position on Medicaid is popular mm -hmm. they win votes because they can convince people that you you should net you should just absolutely under no circumstances vote for a democrat <laughs> and um and yeah. and that's that's actually and 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 by the way is is i mean i think i'm kind of like you know you you all know more about this than i do but uh, but i'll just this is my view um they have a tremendous advantage they start you know on the 50 yard line because it's not just them that have to demonize the Democrats. I mean, I, and, and I don't use that word lightly. I think Mike Moyle actually calls Democrats like Democrats or something. <laughs> like they, they write that they, they demonize. We've heard that one before. <laughs> like he literally. So he so when they demonize Democrats, they have a they start on the they start with a huge advantage because there's a whole infrastructure of of uh, national media, not to mention like talk radio and all that stuff, right. that has been doing that work for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, the, and, and there's no, and I mean, maybe this come, this speaks to exactly what we're doing here on this podcast, but we, but we just don't have an infrastructure uh, right. that stands up for it. And I'm not even talking about like Democrats, but like just in general, a more like a broader view of um, a much more realistic view of economic policy, of, of, of political philosophy. There's just no, there's, there's, there's no equivalent mm -hmm. um, when it comes to, you know, an actual communications infrastructure right. um, that's putting out an alternative narrative. So anyway, right. but, but, but I'll just wrap up by saying it's um, Medicaid expansion victory of Medicaid expansion revealed that however distorted our kind of partisan system, our, our partisan politics are, if you can make it strictly about the issues, mm -hmm. that's where there's real hope for progress. Mm -hmm. um, because people actually are pretty reasonable. People can be very reasonable when it comes to actually looking right. closely at the issues. Yeah. Definitely. So, uh, when was it? February that we had? Yeah. We had uh, our friend David Daly on the podcast. And, oh, good. Yeah. And, you know, national gerrymandering expert. And he mentioned that in his new book, Unrigged. Yeah. He mentions Reclaim. Um, have you given that a read? Are you familiar with that? Oh, of course. Yeah. He, there's an entire chapter. Yeah. Um, on on reclaim idaho and in, in unrigged and we've been yeah we've been passing that all over the state and <laughs> we got um we 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 developed a partnership with a bonners amazing bonners ferry bookstore called bonners books mm -hmm. um 
you can actually go to reclaimidaho.org slash unrigged and oh. order your copy there you go from bonner's books cool. so you can actually they'll they'll in a time of you know pandemic it's mm-hmm. important to support these local businesses so um we love anyway but no oh, that's awesome <laughs> it, it was amazing to um partner up with david daly um mm-hmm. he drove he, he joined us in the camper oh. and um oh very cool and and he the, the author of unrigged he um he went on tour with us from you know from like pocatello to idaho falls and back and um yeah. stayed even stayed with us stayed stayed in the rv one night in american falls in the rv park so, <laughs> how fun that was um, awesome but it's a great book and people i i think it's a I think conceptually, it's a great way to understand what we're dealing with in Idaho. This concept of a rigged political system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that, in I and he's talking about different things in different states, but in Idaho, I think it really comes down to you've got a you've got a population that wants. A, oh, sorry, I got a little ten month old. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> this is pandemic podcasting. Yes. Yep. Hey, it happens. <laughs> But uh, don't mind. But um, but in Idaho, you you really do have a system where the vast majority of people are, you know, either kind of just on, on the edge of the middle class, um, living paycheck to paycheck, or they're or they're outright struggling, and they want. If you actually go and have a conversation with them, oh, sorry, sorry, buddy. We'll bring him. We'll bring him. We now have the youngest guest in ID Pod history. That's true. <laughs> okay, we're, we're, him on the here. we're good sports about it. Yeah, you're hey, good. Buddy. So, it's Micah. Hi, Micah. Hi. So, um, what's so, your favorite uh, potato dish? Yeah, Micah. What's your favorite <laughs> potato? <laughs> Whatever Gerber gives but, up. Um, really better. So, um. No, but you, we have a system here in Idaho where the vast majority of people um, are, you know, either just on the edge of the middle class, you know, living mm-hmm. paycheck to paycheck, where they're really struggling. It's not, um, we're not a rich state, right? No. Um, and um, I think we're 37th in per capita income or something like that. And, um, and yet, we have a political system that that does not respond to the basic needs of working people. Mm-hmm. And that's a fundamental contradiction in Idaho politics. And I think that that concept of a rigged system mm-hmm. um, really does capture that. And and I like that he I like that he lumped in the Reclaim Idaho story with these other stories around the country because I do think what we are doing when we put Medicaid expansion on the ballot is we we're at least attempting to unrig the system, uh, you know, one campaign at a time. Right. Yeah. So um, I guess the question that a lot of people are thinking right now is what's next for reclaim? What's going to happen for your next, what will you be taking on next? Will you continue to try to, um, work with invest in Idaho. What's next for reclaim? Well, it's, we're really at a stage of regrouping, um, figuring out a path forward. I think in the immediate term, we have to tell the story of this invest in Idaho K-12 funding initiative. And, you know, and this is just the most immediate term, like the next couple of weeks at least. Um, we need to tell the story of why it is that the governor would so aggressively oppose mm-hmm. this initiative. Um, right. Because I think it says a lot about Idaho politics. Um, because here you have a governor who, you know, by any measure is not the worst of people who could be governor in Idaho. Uh, a lot of people are relatively pleased with at least couple months ago how he was handling the you know he's he's willing to wear a mask for example we have a governor who's willing to wear a mask and that says a lot compared to some of the other figures in our state and Mm -hmm. some of the governors of other states um 
But what this initiative revealed is that it's just not, it's not enough to just blame things on the far right. We really have an establishment in this state that thinks that the status quo is good enough and, and that thinks they can speak to the needs of working people mm-hmm. at, without actually following through. Um, and Governor Little's a great example of that because he comes into office saying his number one priority is education. His number one priority. But then he ends up fighting tooth and nail to defeat an initiative that would increase funding for, for K-12 education. And, and you got to ask, why did he do that? Mm-hmm. If, if, he re- if education really is his number one priority, he, I'm not saying he would come out swinging in support of the initiative because, you know, he would probably prefer not to tax right. high income earners and all that stuff. But he could have stayed on the sidelines. He could have been neutral. Mm-hmm. He could have, when the, when the federal judge ordered that we could do an electronic signature drive, he could have basically, he could have like, you know, beat up the judge in the media a little bit, you know, said that this is judicial activism. I don't like this, but then just step back and say, okay, we'll, we'll live with it. Right. He right. could have done that. And it wouldn't have mattered that like, he wouldn't have paid much of a political price for that. It would have been fine. Right. He didn't do it. He want, he did not want this initiative to be on the ballot. And I believe the reason why is because if this initiative would have made the ballot, it would have been very revealing in a way that he and his ilk wouldn't like. It would have revealed, for example, that you know his $26 million investment in early literacy is actually very small and inconsequential. <laughs> um, it would have revealed that his $100 million cut to K-12 mm-hmm. was not necessary, that you could actually, in fact, make a few very modest, reasonable changes to the tax code and avoid cutting the budget by $100 million. And, you know, in the big picture, it would have revealed that education is not his number one priority. And in fact, it would have suggested his number one priority is protecting a really sweetheart deal on taxes for large corporations and the wealthiest Idahoans. That's, that's actually the larger priority not just for him, but for the for the establishment that he's a part of. So I think Reclaim Idaho has a real role to play in telling that story, in in being a really strong voice for an alternative. Um, because so often, and of course I think the Idaho Democratic Party has a very important role in this as well, but so so often in Idaho, the whole the whole political divide becomes between basically um, conspiracy theorists and this and this establishment that really um, is okay with the status quo mm-hmm. um, and is and is willing to and basically sees its job as doing the bare the the barest of the bare minimum to to show that they care um what what you know reclaim idaho can really help do is show that no there's actually a a way there's an alternative and you know what and and this is something we're going to talk about soon um we're going to actually release some of the polling on our initiative so that it's not just like this isn't just some speculation coming from you know some progressive or something this is actually what the voters of Idaho wanted. That's great. Um, they were very willing to make modest adjustments to the tax code in order to make a significant investment in education. Right. Um, so anyway, that's, I mean, but that's just kind of like the narrative that we need to tell going forward. In terms of a next project, I think that um, we'll definitely be working to um, help educate voters about where different legislators stand on these key issues of Medicaid. And, um, so we want to make sure that if you're running in a, you know, competitive election and 
you were willing to repeal Medicaid expansion or you were willing to put like really harmful restrictions on Medicaid expansion, your voters ought to know about that. Yes, Especially if you're in a district where the vast majority of your own voters right. voted for Medicaid expansion. So we want to do right. that. Um, we're also very, we're, I'll just, one more thing I'll just say, we're, we're very worried about um, in the next legislative session, the possibility that they'll come after the initiative again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's very possible. And there are a number of reasons why we think that's, that's somewhat likely. So we have to be vigilant about that too. For sure. Um, but anyway, that's, so that's what I, we're, but that said, we're still at a very, we're at a regrouping stage. So there's not really concrete mm -hmm. plans yet. Yeah. Well, that's where we're, at. we're ready for that. If they yeah. decide to come back against the initiative yeah. and we'll be ready to gerrymandering and, and all that stuff. <laughs> yes. We'll be there. We'll be there with you. Well, well Luke, thanks. It's been great. You yeah. Know. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been wanting to get you on yeah. here. Um, so we're glad we finally were able to and that you were able to share your insight with us. Yeah, we appreciate it, Luke. Thanks so much. Thank you all. Okay, till next time. Take Thanks, care of yourself. Luke. Bye. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this newest episode of ID Pod. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks to Luke again for joining us. Please share this episode um, on your social media pages. Yeah. Share it with your Idaho Democrat friends who might not have heard of us. We yeah. want to make sure that people are listening and enjoying what we put out. And we want to make these episodes even better in the future for you. Yeah. So more listeners, the better. Yeah. So with that said, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, guys.